open your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. We're finishing up the sermon that got Peter arrested for the first time, certainly not for the last time. And in the first part of the sermon, as we saw last week, he talks about God's promises to Abraham. He begins and ends his sermon with references to the God of Abraham. And then in the second half of the sermon, he speaks specifically to the Jewish people, who are, of course, his audience here. And he says, Jesus is your Messiah. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah for the Jewish people. And therefore, you need to listen to him. And he quotes the Deuteronomy 18 passage about the prophet like Moses to whom you shall listen. And threatens that they will be cut off from Israel if they don't listen. So Acts chapter 3, we'll start at verse 19. Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out and times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and then he may send Christ, the Messiah appointed for you whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall come to pass that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. And at that point, no doubt he's forced to the ground, they're putting the cuffs on him, and that's why the sermon ends there, as chapter 4 recounts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you sent your Son to bless us by turning us from our sins. Lord, help us to see this message of Jesus as the Messiah appointed for his Jewish brothers and sisters, and that that promise now comes to us as well because of the wideness of your mercy and the generosity, the magnitude of your great salvation. Father, we pray that you would free us from distraction this morning, that you would help me to speak boldly as Peter spoke, not afraid of the police who are coming to arrest him, but rather more eager to declare the good news about Jesus to the people in front of him, the people he called brethren. Lord, help us to pay attention to this word and to live in light of it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The last time Peter committed the offense of repeating across three verses, that it was their sin that crucified Jesus. Remember, he compared them unfavorably to Pilate 
their least favorite politician. He said how rotten they were, that they killed the Prince of Life and God had to come along behind them and fix it. That's how bad you are. That was his first point. And then the second point here is just as offensive. Peter puts it positively. Positively, what's the point? Jesus is for Jews first. Jews are number one, God's top priority. Jesus came primarily in the first instance for the Jewish people. And that's why Peter calls them brethren in verse 17. Yet that point is just as offensive as the first point about how they killed Jesus because if you put it negatively, what is the point? Judaism is not enough. That's the point. Negatively stated. Jesus is the Messiah for the Jews. That's positive. But that means that they need a Messiah. Right? Peter is saying, I'm just as much a Jew as all of you, and that is not good enough in God's plan. We need something more. We need the prophet like Moses, which is Jesus, and anyone who doesn't listen to him will be utterly destroyed from among the people. As is then, of course, fulfilled in the next few chapters, as the temple leadership is increasingly cut off from the body of the Jewish people who listened to the apostles, not to their own ostensible leaders. And we'll see that across chapter 4, 5, 6, and 7. Peter says, listen to the prophet like Moses or be cut off from Israel. And then the rest of Acts, of course, records how some listened to the prophet like Moses and most did not and were therefore cut off from Israel. So what's Peter's point? Jesus is first of all the Jewish Messiah for the Jewish people. But therefore, and secondarily, he's for us Gentiles to turn us from our sins as well. Verse 20, repent, Jesus Christ will come, the one who is the Messiah appointed for you. Now there's a textual variant here, if you have the King James or New King James, it says Jesus Christ, the Messiah who has preached to you before. That's not in most manuscripts. Almost all manuscripts that we have say Jesus, the Messiah appointed for you. What does that mean? Well, it's another way of saying what Christ said in chapter 1. Stay in Jerusalem. Witness there first. The message, number one priority, is to reach the Jewish people. Therefore, don't leave Jerusalem. Don't go to Rome. Don't try to find other centers of influence, Ephesus, Alexandria, Damascus, other great cities in the Roman Empire. No, stay in Jerusalem, which then as now had no claim to being one of the world's major cities. It's a city, but it's not in the same rank as Rome or Alexandria. Right? Just as we would say, well, yeah, Rapid City is a city, but it's not in the same rank as New York, Los Angeles, and Houston, our three largest cities, not even close. 
So it was with Jerusalem. No, Jesus told them to stay in Jerusalem because his priority is to reach the Jewish people. And so Peter says specifically, Christ is the Messiah appointed for you. Jewish people need a Messiah. They have one. His name is Jesus. You killed him. And where is he? He's in heaven, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration. Where is this Messiah? Well, he's gone. He went back to heaven. Now, if you're looking for someone who can save you and you have a choice, one individual lives on earth and the other individual lives in heaven, who's the obvious candidate? Somebody who lives on earth and shares in all the problems of earth or somebody who's in heaven and has the joys and blessings of heaven? Jesus is in heaven. Obviously, the book of Acts deals with that reality. Christ is reigning. We don't see him. He's in heaven. He's still reigning. And how long will he stay in heaven? Well, he'll return at the time of restoration of all things. What is that time? Well, Peter uses a single Greek word that's translated as the time of restoration of all things. And I put that in your outline. The word is apokatastasis. Normally it's a bad idea to preach Greek words. I brought this one in because it has been brought into English as a name not just of a Greek word, but for a whole doctrine. And people look to this passage and say, by the doctrine of apokatastasis, we mean everything will be restored. And by everything, they mean everything. Judas and Hitler will be released from hell. They'll repent. Satan and the demons will join them. And we will all sit down to the marriage supper of the Lamb with ex-demons, Lucifer, now reformed, and every evil person that you would think is in hell. Nope, they're all going to be saved. There will be no hell. Hell will be closed down permanently because... Well, Peter says it. The times of restoration of all things, which is what apokatastasis means. Now, is that actually what Peter means? Jesus will stay in heaven until everything gets put right. And by everything being put right, we mean that all bad people will repent. Every bad thing will be undone. And God will simply set the clock back such that everyone will be saved. We call this doctrine also universalism, which in its strong form says even Satan himself will come back at the end. Because otherwise God would lose. If there's anybody who's still allowed to keep choosing evil, God has failed. And God cannot fail. Therefore, apokatastasis. Everyone will come back. But that's not what Peter is preaching. How do we know? Well, simply because what Peter is describing, using this word, apokatastasis, is what's described elsewhere in the New Testament as the coming of the kingdom. As God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus, yes, will set all wrongs right at his coming, but the suffering of a Judas or a Hitler in hell is not a wrong that needs to be set right, it is the setting right of a wrong. 
Jesus returns, when the kingdom comes, when God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven, that doesn't mean that Satan and the demons will repent. It means that they will be punished for what they've done. And so with wicked men who say, I will not bow, I will not submit, I reject God and I'm happy to do so. They too will know God's punishment. Where does this idea that even Satan will repent come from? Well, psychologically speaking, it seems to me that when you're a comfortable part of a comfortable majority in a country that's steadily getting richer, it's easy to think that no one is really evil. But when you're a despised part of a persecuted minority in a country that's steadily getting poorer, that's when the fangs come out and the claws are bared. And when evil is a lot more obvious all around you. Peter says Jesus will return at the time of restoration of all things. By that he doesn't mean every last thing without exception will be restored to some kind of pre-fall wholeness. Rather he means that God will come and punish those who need it, save those whom he's chosen, whom he's forgiven, whom he's set apart for himself, and the world will move on into the next phase, what we call the eternal state or heaven. It's coming. It will happen. And what he goes on to say then is that this has been prophesied from the beginning. The time of restoration of all things. Heaven must receive him until that time, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Now this is fitting with Luke's emphasis on Jesus and his work throughout all of Scripture. And if we went through all the prophets right now and said, what do they talk about? Do any of them talk about everything being set right? Well, not in those terms. What do they describe? They describe Israel increasing. Lengthen your boundaries. Your territory will become larger. You will have more people. Or my favorite from Isaiah 60, a multitude of camels will cover you. You'll grow rich. Right? Wealth is measured in livestock. The more camels, the better off you are. But these prophecies about Israel succeeding, thriving, God's people growing, and getting bigger and richer, these are prophecies, ultimately, of the restoration of all things. They're prophecies about the coming of the kingdom. And all the prophets spoke of that. By the same token, then, the prophets speaking about Israel's enemies being put down, Philistia withering away, Egypt being taught a lesson, Syria getting its comeuppance. These prophecies also say the kingdom is coming. God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. They're prophecies of the restoration of all things, as Peter describes it here in shorthand. How does this happen? Is Jesus sitting in heaven waiting for everything to get better? And then he'll come back. No, right? The opposite is true. Jesus will come back and make everything better. He will come back and set it all to rights. The time of restoration of all things. All the prophets have said it. Jesus is in heaven until it happens because when he comes back from heaven, he'll make it happen. 
He will restore the world to the way it ought to be. I just saw on the shelf a couple of nights ago Rush Limbaugh's book from the 90s with the title, See, I Told You So. Now imagine, if you would, if God had put that title on the spine of the Bible. That's not what this book is. It's not a see, I told you so. But in some ways, of course, it is. God has told us what's going to happen. And what's going to happen is that Christ will return and set everything to rights. The prophets talked about this. Peter says, and that starts him off on this path of talking about the prophets. So when he mentions prophets, who does he go to first? Who's the biggie? Moses, the great prophet. There has not arisen a prophet since, the end of Deuteronomy tells us. Like Moses, man mighty in word and deed. Moses is the first and greatest of all the prophets. And he prophesied what? Well, Peter quotes the Deuteronomy 18 passage. The Lord your God will raise up for you. So there it is again. Right, exactly what Peter said. The Messiah appointed for you. Here it is in Deuteronomy 18. The prophet, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things whatever he says to you. times of restoration of all things, how those come about through the prophet like Moses, who will be a prophet. A prophet is someone who declares God's word, who foretells what God has to say. And therefore, what you do with the prophet is listen to him. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. Now, children, if there's one command you hear more than any other, what is it? Listen. Your mommy is talking to you. Your daddy is talking to you. Listen to what they tell you. That's exactly the command that God gives His children. A prophet is coming. One greater than Moses. Listen to all that He says. Or it shall come to pass that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Now why does Peter amp that up? Any of you notice what it said in Deuteronomy? Go back there for a second. How did Moses put it about the one who wouldn't listen? Deuteronomy 18, and this was the last verse of what we read, verse 19. It shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which the prophet speaks in my name, I will require it of him. God says, I'll require it of him. Peter dials that up to shall be utterly destroyed from among his people. God says, listen to the prophet, he'll answer to me. Peter fills in what the punishment is for not listening to the prophet. You are obliterated out of the people of God. You no longer belong. That is, God won't set you to write on the whiteboard 25 times, I will listen to the prophet. I will listen to the prophet. 
Punishment is what we call expulsion. You will be kicked out, utterly destroyed from among the people. Peter is getting threatening. You all cut off Christ. You're a bunch of murderers. That's why six weeks ago, I was terrified to admit that I even stood with Christ. He doesn't say that, but that's why he was terrified to say it. Now he's not afraid to say it. He's not afraid to come up to the murderers and tell them, you're murderers. I know you're a murderer. You're worse than a politician. And you're cruising to be utterly destroyed from among God's people. You will have to hand in your Jew card. Because that identity you have as the people of God will vanish the instant you conclusively stop listening to the prophet. Jesus is that prophet. If you're not listening to him, you will lose everything you gained through Moses if you won't go on and believe in Jesus. Of course, that's exactly what happens over the course of the next several chapters. The Jews lose their status as being the people of God because they won't listen to the words of the prophet like Moses. Now, it's easy to leave it there, right? Oh, well, those people didn't listen. So nice to be more righteous than them. Peter is also preaching to us, which is why this sermon is recorded here. What is he telling us? Listen to the prophet like Moses. The instant you congratulate yourself on, I'm a better listener, is the instant you've stopped listening. It's the instant you have adopted that same identity that the Pharisees and Sadducees had. We are the people of God. We are the chosen ones and nothing can ever kick us out of that spot. And Peter comes along and says, well, here's something that will kick you out, failing to listen to Jesus. To which they respond, well, you're kicked out. You shouldn't say things like that. That's chapter 4. That's Peter getting arrested. Don't think, well, I'm more righteous than these people in the pages of the New Testament. I definitely listen to Jesus. Oh, yeah? If you definitely listen to Jesus, prove it by how you live. Show it by your faith, hope, and love. Show it by the peace that's in your life, in your home, in your mind, in your words. By the contentment with which you approach business dealings and the marketplace. By the joy that you have in marriage or singleness. That's how you show that you've listened to Jesus, the prophet, like Moses, but greater. Well, the next major prophet after Moses is Samuel. Moses founded Israel. He started the Jewish nation. Samuel gave it a formal structure by anointing the first king over Israel. Samuel began the monarchy, and therefore Peter says, yes, all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. How did the prophets proclaim the days of Messiah? Well, 
Samuel proclaimed the days by anointing first Saul and then David and essentially telling everyone, this is your king. Obey him. Do what he says. So Moses foretold Christ as prophet. Samuel foretold Christ as king. You have to listen to a prophet. You have to obey a king. Moses, Samuel, all the prophets spoke of Christ in these three offices of prophet, priest, and king. Listen to him as prophet. Obey him as king. Be saved by him as priest. That's Peter's message. And so he has this blanket emphasis. All the prophets. Samuel, those who follow, as many as have spoken. Any prophet who prophesied, prophesied about Jesus. You can even think about somebody like Obadiah, the shortest book in the Old Testament, one chapter. He doesn't mention a Messiah per se, but he does say in his last verse, saviors will go up to Mount Zion and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Prophesying about Jesus is the one who comes and saves. And so with all the prophets. Luke tells us this over and over. The whole Bible is about Jesus, not a certain few select messianic texts not a few places where the message breaks through but the whole thing relates to him Peter certainly can see the cops coming forward through the crowd at this point he knows he doesn't have long left and so he packs in the last few things he wants to say you are sons of the prophets of the covenant which God made with your father's saying to Abraham. And so he addresses them, finally, Jesus is your Messiah. Your king, anointed by Samuel, your prophet, prophesied by Moses. So listen to him because of your heritage. What's your heritage? Well, they're sons of the prophets. And Peter meant that, really in two senses, both physically and spiritually. You're spiritually sons of the prophets in that you have their writings. You read them. You know what they say. And you're physically descended from the prophets. Now how could he say that? Well, there's an interesting mathematical problem out there. All of you, as you know, the number of your ancestors doubles with every generation. That is, there's one of me. I have two parents. Each of them had two parents. Each of them had two parents. So I have... Two parents, four grandparents, eight great-grandparents, 16 great-grandparents, and so on. And if you go back very far, doubling the number of ancestors with each generation, soon you have more ancestors than the total number of people who have ever lived. How is that possible? Well, the answer is that some of those people double up. They're the same people. My great-great-great-great-great-great-aunt on one side is also a great, 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 great aunt on another side. It's a fun mathematical curiosity. Those of you who are bored with the sermon can just sit and calculate this out now. What is Peter saying? Well, you're literally sons of the prophets. There have been prophets in Israel for the last thousand years. There's a generation every 20 years. Then by the time we've doubled your ancestors, that Surely there was a prophet somewhere in your lineage. Gotta be. 
you're sons of the prophets. You have their writings. You have their DNA. Don't forsake that heritage. What's always the issue in our attempts to evangelize our Jewish friends? It's this issue that Peter dials in on as he's got 30 seconds before they jump on him and cuff him. It's the issue of the heritage. Your heritage, you say, I can't forsake Judaism and become a Christian. Peter says, that's all wrong. No, your heritage is to follow the Messiah. Your heritage to be a Jew means becoming a Christian. Don't tell me that your heritage prevents you, that you would be betraying your whole past if you were to follow Christ. The opposite is true. You're betraying your whole past if you refuse to follow Christ because you're sons of the prophets and all of them talked about Him. You're sons of the covenant which God made with your fathers. What is that covenant? Well, Peter tells us what it is. In your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's a covenant God made with Abraham. A bond in blood, sovereignly administered. God said, Abraham, you're my child. I'm your God. And through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Peter tells his audience, you're the heirs of that promise. That comes to you. You're sons of Abraham? That's great. That means you're sons of the covenant. God made it with your fathers. God bound himself to your fathers, therefore he bound himself to you. That's why we baptize children in this church. Because God's promise, because it's made to fathers, is therefore also made to their children. Peter doesn't hesitate to apply this to his audience. God made a promise to your fathers hundreds, thousands of years ago. That promise is still for you, so embrace it. Right? His message is not, God made a promise to your father, so you're off the hook. You're set. No, God made a promise to your fathers, therefore, claim it for yourself. Say, I want this promise. I believe this God. And you do that by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. You're sons of the promise to Abraham. Real Judaism is Messianic Judaism. Real descent from Abraham is worshiping the God that Abraham worshipped, following in the footsteps of the faith of Abraham, who looked to the one, his singular seed, in whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. That's Jesus. Look to Jesus. That's Peter's announcement. So he summarizes in his final verse, your priority to you first. You're not second. You're not third. Right? You know, sometimes you get asked to do something and the person will tell you, well, I asked so-and-so first and he couldn't do it. And then I asked so-and-so and she couldn't do it. Now I'm asking you. Oh, great. Well, I'm not your first choice. But Peter says to his Jewish brothers and sisters, you are God's first choice. The Messiah is for you first, and Paul says that too over and over, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Priority number one in the economy of God is the salvation of the Jewish people 
And so God raised up his servant Jesus, kind of a double meaning there. He gave him life, gave him existence, put him on this earth. He raised him up in that sense. That's the incarnation, but it's also the resurrection. God raised him up from the dead and sent him to you to bless you. Peter is preaching blessing, but he's saying you have to embrace Jesus to get this blessing. And when he blesses you, he does it by turning away every one of you from your, and the last word he can get out is sins, before they knock him down and put the cuffs on. That's what the blessing consists of. Being turned away from sin. That's what Jesus came to do. Right? Now that's not a pleasant message. What is he saying? Negatively put, it's you're sinners. You have to stop being sinners. But positively, it's God sent Jesus to do that. To turn you from sin, to save you through the ministry of the one who is the great prophet like Moses, who is the great king like David, who is the singular seed of Abraham. If you look to Abraham, if you look to Moses, if you look to David and say, that's my heritage then you need to look to Jesus and say, that's my Messiah. So Peter's clearly struck a nerve. They arrest him for this. As he struck our nerves. That is, do we say, well, this message is for Jews first, but it's for us second. Yes, we're priority number two. We get that. We are second fiddle in the kingdom of God. And that's okay. How blessed are those who eat bread in the kingdom of God. So if you say, I do believe in Jesus. Yes, that's my Messiah. Then you have to ask yourself, have I departed from my sin? Do I turn away from my iniquities? Or do I wallow there for months and years at a stretch? Peter says, if the Messiah has come for you, that's the payoff. You turn from your sins. You don't double down, you back down. Embrace your status as a Gentile heir of the promises. Don't sin. Live for God. That might get you arrested. It got Peter arrested. But it won't matter. Because you'll belong to Jesus and belonging to Him is much better than staying out of jail and not belonging to Him. He's a Jew who came for the Jews. But his salvation is for us non-Jewish people too. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your salvation is to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. We thank you, Father, that Jesus came for us. We pray for the restoration of Israel and for the Jewish brothers and sisters of our Lord to embrace their true heritage. We ask for the Gentiles as well, Father, for whom Christ is the Messiah just as much as he is for the Jews. Lord, bring us to faith, to greater faith. Help us to turn from our sin more readily, more eagerly, and help us not to stop praying for the conversion of the lost and the salvation of the world, for the apokatastasis, the restoration of all things that the prophets have been talking about since the beginning of the world. Lord, we long for that. Bring your kingdom. Do your will. To the Jew first 
and also to the Greek. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.